What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Bel Air Radio. I'm your host, Jaisha Smalls. Recently here at Bennett, there was a program on Zoom called Lit at Lunch, Dear Black Girl. Now, this program featured two authors, Tamara Winfrey Harris and Deisha Filial. Winfrey Harris is the author of the book, Dear Black Girl, and Deisha submitted a letter for that book about her relationship with her father. So let's listen to part one of their discussion. We have had this incredible experience of getting to know the one, the only, Tamara Winfrey Harris. And she said that I should not do her bio. I need to focus on our guest's bio today. But I do want to just say hello, Tamara Winfrey Harris. Welcome back. Hey. (laughs) Tell us where you're coming to us from. So I am here from the beautiful Center for Black Literature and Culture at the Central Library in Indianapolis, which is why I have these ridiculous earphones on because it's hopping, but it is a gorgeous place. All the Indianapolis natives, we have Mari Evans on the wall and, you know, great Gwendolyn Brooks behind, like there's a Jinky, Nikki Giovanni, sorry, I'm looking at Gwendolyn Brooks over there. So just a plethora of writers and natives to Indiana and it's a wonderful space to be. I love it. Thank you. Welcome. You brought a friend with you. If you attended virtually or in person, Convocatum Est, I was reading a little bit and riffing um, on the book, Dear Black Girls. And so today we have what one of the letter writers. Come on, Disha Filia. And I want to talk about her debut short story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Ladies and gentlemen, I am turning you over to these two ladies for a raucous, that's what they promised, conversation. Yeah. So let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you, last year, here's how all our conversations went. Hey, Disha, what'd you win today? That's how all of our conversations <laughs> Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation and this wonderful collaboration that you have with Bennett College. Um, So I'm excited for us to get into it today. When I was here last month, I heard a lot of questions from Bennett Bells about what sisterhood looks like um, and and also what it looks like when, you know, you're not treated well. And Disha is one of the people that always treats me well. But before we get into our conversation, I just wanted to give a little background on Dear Black Girl and how it came to be. Uh, And there there are kind of two parts of the origin story. Thank you, thank you, Vanna. Two parts of the origin story. One is that when I was traveling around with another one of our dear friends, Deshaun Perry, promoting my first book, The Sisters Are All Right. Here's what, here's what I noticed, Disha, and I know I told you about this at the time, is that I would get together with these groups of Black women, mm-hmm. um, and the book was about Black women and stereotypes. And so we'd start talking, and they would reject the idea of stereotypes for themselves. So, you know, Jezebel, Mammy, Sapphire, you know, anger, you know, hypersexuality, they would reject those. But then when they started talking about younger Black women and girls, somehow that same demeaning language started creeping into the conversation. 
So it became, I remember one, one particular discussion where an older sister was like, I don't know about these young women. They're awfully free with their bodies. I guess they call it liberation. And just the look, it was such a stank face. And I just, and I just wondered, like, how do younger women, how do girls receive that? Are they feeling, because we're supposed to, we, we can be each, we can be our best allies. I mean, who knows better what younger women go through than other black women. Um, You know, but if we're feeling from, if younger women are feeling from us disgust or judgment, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not love. And so I I held that in my head a few years later when I was doing a multi-generational workshop um, for women and girls. And I thought it would be great if every girl that came got a letter from a Black woman, a letter that was affirmative, that was Black girl positive, that was LGBTQ positive, that was anti-respectability politics, that didn't make judgments about... Um, class or judgments about religion um, that just was, uh, you know, showed vulnerability and caring. And I thought the letter, you know, was a perfect way to do that because there's something intimate um, about epistolary communication. And so I went online and I asked for 12 letters and I got 50 from around the world. And I read the first one and cried, even though I try not to, I cried and realized that more more Black girls than just the 12 that were going to be in that room needed this book, um, that a bunch of girls needed this book. And so a book would be the way to get it to them. And so that's how Dear Black Girl came to be with all of its topics from identity, you know, talking about being biracial, talking about colorism, talking about being non-binary, um, talking about um, you know, what sisterhood looks like, talking about sex, um, talking about mental health, all of those issues. Um, but the, two real, the, the one really important one that I wanna talk about today is relationships. Um, and two of my favorite chapters in the book, even though they're all like my babies, One of them is the chapter about um, family because our black families are so often derided. And I knew that I wanted the letters in that chapter to cover the breadth of black family relationships. And I knew exactly who I wanted to contribute to that chapter. And that was the Disha Filia literary treasure. (laughs) I, you know, I was honored to contribute um, to the to this book, but you know, it's not only a book that our girls need now. It's the book that many of us needed <laughs> when we were girls, and that some of us at our our big ages now still need. You know, it's it's a very healing book. I think for for those of us across you know generations. Um, and so, before I read my letter, I have a question for you. Tamara, who does not like to cry and get personal. So I always do this to her at events. I ask a personal question. So this time, my personal question is, imagine teenage Tammy picking up Dear Black Girl. 
which letter would you turn to first? Full disclosure, I probably would have turned to the sex uh, one just Me too. because. Um, <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> but the one I probably needed the most, and it's actually more than one letter. Several of the letters get at this idea about us being okay as we are. Um, and I was a kid and actually grew up into an adult, um, very focused and driven by doing and achievement. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be punishing sometimes, especially mm -hmm. when it weaves its way into this idea that Black women are supposed to be strong and handle everything. And mm -hmm. so I wish I had heard those words that you are okay, you are okay, separate from all of your achievements when I was younger. Absolutely, mm -hmm. I definitely would have needed that. You were so generous in letting me, you know, contribute what I felt led to contribute. And um, I, you mentioned that there would be a, a family chapter, a chapter on family relationships. And so I wanted to write about um, the relationship that I did and didn't have with my father. Um, and it was important to me because for two reasons. One, as a writer, I've found it difficult at times to write about this relationship. It's one of the most challenging for me to write about. But also we um, as black girls often take on shame that belongs to other people. And so a lot of my relationship with my father was um, characterized by the shame that I had around what we what was and what wasn't and who he was, but that was not my shame to, to carry. Um, so I imagined as I was writing this letter, writing to a girl who felt like I used to feel um, about my father. Dear beloved black girl, as a kid growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, I watched a lot of TV. No, really, I mean a lot of TV. We didn't call it binge watching then. And for most of my childhood, there were only three channels with shows with no shows on demand. But my friends and I still managed to watch hours of TV each day. Some of my favorite shows were ones about families with a mom and a dad, not families like mine with a mama and a grandma. My parents never married and my father didn't live with me. I only saw him on occasion. And even then, most of the time, he would pick me up and take me to his parents' house and leave me. My favorite TV shows made me wish I had a normal family with a normal dad. I wish my father lived with us. I wished he was around to give advice and go on vacations and keep his promises the way a TV dad did. Or at least try to make it up to me when he broke his promises the way a TV dad would. TV dads also didn't lie, drink too much, dodge child support, and live apart from all of their children. I loved my father, but he made me feel ashamed. He was a deadbeat dad, a walking stereotype of the absentee black father. If he was those things, I wondered as a kid, what did that make me? I loved my father, but I was ashamed because he lied to a judge and said I wasn't his child, trying to avoid paying child support. I was ashamed even though I hadn't done anything wrong. I felt lonely a lot as a child. My mama and grandma showered me with love and attention, but the hole in my heart was shaped like my father. I don't know what it's like to be a daddy's girl or to have a father be proud of me and my accomplishments. 
I loved my father, but I didn't start to have a relationship with him until the final months of his life. He died when he was 54 and I was 34. I cherished those months, but I wish he would have been more present in my life when I was a child. Maybe your dad lies too and doesn't keep his promises. Maybe he doesn't help take care of you. Maybe he isn't around to cheer you on at your games or make sure you've done your homework. Maybe you've lost count of the ways he's hurt you or let you down. I've been there. My mother pushed me to have a relationship with my father that he didn't want. She pushed me to respect him as a father even though he did nothing to earn that respect. I grew up in the church and we were taught that the Bible says you must honor your father and mother. I wanted to be a good Christian, so I thought that meant I had to act like my father was a good dad, like a TV dad. I thought I had to keep forgiving him, even though he never asked for forgiveness or changed how he treated me. As I got older, I found myself looking to boys to give me the love and attention I didn't get, to my get from my father. As an adult, I learned that this is common for girls like us, and it can lead to a lot of heartache and problems. If you're anything like me, you'll fall in love easily, equate sex with love. It's not the same thing. Choose boys who lie and are untrustworthy and then be devastated when the relationships end. I know that trying to hold back the tsunami of teenage hormones and emotions is hard, especially when your dad hasn't been there for you, but I encourage you to take things slowly and choose wisely. Don't settle for someone just because you don't want to be alone. If you take one lesson away from this letter, let it be this. It's better to be alone than, be, than to be with someone who doesn't treat you with kindness and respect the way you deserve to be treated. And did I mention that sex and love are not the same thing? Okay, good. Back to my father. As I got older, older I was confused by his behavior. Why wouldn't he want to be there for me the way his father, my granddaddy was there for him and his five siblings. My grandparents were married for more than 60 years. To my knowledge, my grandfather was always president. But now that I'm an adult, I understand that being there for your child means more than just physical presence. I don't know if my father experienced the kind of parenting that I needed from him as a child. I don't know if he knew how to be a good father. Now that I'm almost 50, I can see my parents as not just my parents, but as people. I can see them as people with their own traumas, fears, and grief from when they were kids and as adults. I can see them as people who hurt and disappointed me, but who were also hurt and disappointed by others, including their parents. The fancy term for this is generational trauma. Unless we deal with it, we will pass down pain and bad choices from generation to generation. That's not to excuse my dad or your dad for the ways they failed to be the fathers we needed them to be. Generational trauma isn't an excuse, but it is an explanation that helps girls like us better understand the choices our parents made. But understanding alone isn't healing. The kind of relationships we had or didn't have with our fathers impacts every aspect of our lives, how we see ourselves, how we see the world, who we share our lives with. So healing is important. I don't know the ways that your dad wasn't there for you, but I know that whatever happened, it wasn't your fault. 
And I know that your healing can be, begin there. Push past the shame. Tell someone you trust how you feel. Ask for help dealing with your feelings. Therapy has helped me deal with my feelings about my father. Also, I've always loved to read, so I turn to books for healing as well. The Fatherless Daughter Project is a book that has helped heal my father wounds. I didn't read it until a few years ago. I wish I had read it when I was your age. Some people believe that forgiveness is required in order to heal. For them, that may be true, but I don't believe that's true for everyone. Instead of being taught to honor and forgive a father who did not deserve it, I wish that as a child, I had been taught to honor myself and my feelings. Forgiveness is complicated. We don't owe anyone forgiveness. We owe ourselves compassion and tenderness and time. Don't let anyone pressure you to forgive your father. In fact, question everything, especially those things that require you to put other people's feelings and comfort before your own. Too often people demand this of black girls and women. They say we must be silent about our pain in order to lift up black men for the sake of the black community. This is a lie, plain and simple. We must love ourselves first. Learning to love myself has helped me heal. Today, I have two daughters and they have a wonderful father. Thanks to him and other men I know, I've seen good black fathers in action. I've seen the love, care and attention I deserve from my father and that you deserve from yours. That absentee black dad stereotype is just that, a stereotype. Research shows that black fathers, married or not, are actually more active in their children's lives than other fathers. Something else I've learned, there's no such thing as a normal family and one family type isn't better than another. A family is defined by who is there for you, not who isn't there. The people who love and care for you and who you can count on, that's your family. And one final and very important thing I've learned, you aren't defined by how your father treated you. If he wasn't a good father, know that you deserved better. My hope for you is that you thrive in the world as someone who deserves love, respect, and honesty, because you do. Love, Disha. And now you know why I had to have Disha contribute to this book. I love that letter because it is so vulnerable and it is raw and it is honest. And it gets at this idea that you say that you know, very often girls and black women are told to give space and honor people no matter how they treat us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe in giving grace, but I also believe that um, we should not be doing violence to ourselves. Um, and we're too often told to, you know, but it's your dad. Yeah. You know? And you know, and to that, I would say, I wish somebody had told him, but this is your daughter. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you, you know, it cuts both ways. <laughs> you mentioned that this, this was hard to write about or still is hard to write about. Why, why is that? 
because you write with such clarity and beauty about it. Um, you know, I couldn't have written that 10 years ago, maybe not even five years ago. Um, because, you know, I talk about my mother, my relationship with my mother, I call it the defining relationship of my life. My father, my relationship with my father was in a similar kind of, of fashion. And so it, when I start to reflect and remember, it, it's like opening up a wound all over again. And so emotionally, it's difficult to write about him. But then also from a writing craft perspective, I've had to learn um, the difference between a diary entry <laughs> and an essay. <laughs> Uh, the first time I tried to write about my father would have been about 20 years ago. And I wrote uh, 20 pages, about 20 pages. And it was basically like a deposition of everything he had ever done, you know? And I thankfully had two mentors at that time when I was like, okay, I finally, I wrote about my father and uh, I, I want to know, like, where do you think I should send it to get published? And separately, they both were like, nowhere, this is, this is not ready for public consumption. And helped me to, they helped me to understand the difference between that kind of emotional purge and an essay. Um, and I put that aside and then I didn't write about um, my father again for about maybe 15 years after mm -hmm. that. And when I did, I wrote it as a, a flash nonfiction essay that I don't even think that essay is 500 words. Mm. And I said everything that I you know, was trying to say in those 20 pages, but with the benefit of time and healing um, also learning to be a better writer, learning how to focus and the purpose, you know, I think when I was writing initially those 20 pages, because I felt so unheard before, and I had people telling me that's your dad, that the first time it was like, I'm just gonna let him have it, you know, I'm just gonna put it all out there. 15 years later, that impulse wasn't as strong. Um, I didn't need the same things, you know. And so that's one of the benefits I think of epistolary writing is it kind of helps you focus because, mm -hmm. you know, we could say, in, we could talk endlessly about a particular topic or relationship, but something about the letter format, it constrains, but it also reveals, which I yeah. think is really, you know, there's this illumination that happens that me writing to other girls as opposed to me writing to the world or writing to my father, um, you know, the letter to my father would be very different, you know, from, from this letter and it would reveal some other things, some different things. Um, so I, I'm a huge fan of, of epistolary writing for, for that reason. You know, I think the other thing that I wanted for Dear Black Girl and that you did wonderfully with your letter is, and we've had conversations about this before, right? writing from our gaze, writing from the Black femme gaze. Mm -hmm. And, you know, very often there's this, it, there's this, this caution when we start having conversations about things like fathers, um, deadbeat dads, that, mm -hmm. well, don't talk about that in front of the white folks. Yeah. Like we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to curate this book so that we put the best face forward 
so that, you know, this book for girls ends up being more about respectability than it is about girls actually seeing their real experiences, Mm -hmm. um, you know, laid out for them. And so I really wanted this to be a book where we talked about the real, real stuff. Um, And I appreciate how well that you did that. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, that the whole gaze, you know, we, we, we have this uh, great article that we co-wrote for Bitch Magazine, a conversation about not thinking about any gaze except ours. You know, mm-hmm. the only gaze is ours in, in our work. Um, and, you know, my shorthand answer to that when people raise that is I really don't spend that much time thinking about white people. I think about justice. You know, I think about uh, equity, I think about white supremacy and what, you know, why it needs to be dismantled, but, you know, what individual or what even collectively, you know, this mass of white people will think, you know, I just don't want to give anybody that much control over my life or or my art. Um, And I think too, when we do that, that's what contributes to those, the stank faces that you saw <laughs> from the, the women who were, you know, talking down on, on, on mm-hmm. black girls, because we're worried about white people seeing us as, mm-hmm. as anything other than perfect or stellar or respectable or whatever, as if we're supposed to earn, mm-hmm. you know, earn being treated you know, like human beings or earn justice. Like those are not things that are earned. Those are things that are, are right. And so it, we're playing into that notion, I think, when we are always sort of imagining what they're going to think of us or, or, or you know, how they're going to perceive, um, you know, uh, some something that's a reality for us. Um, and so I, you know, I, I want all Black girls to prioritize their own gaze and, their own comfort um, and their own needs. Um, and the other thing is just basic, which is there's always gonna be someone, <laughs> right? That's going mm-hmm. to be critical, you know, cast a critical lens or whatever. And we just have to remember that we don't exist to please people um, or to keep people comfortable, you know? And I think, so, you know, you know, I love yoga. Um, And I've been playing around recently. I've been reading a lot about ahimsa, which is Mm nonviolence. And when people hear that, there's this tendency to think about how you treat others. And that's part of it, right? So you don't want to speak ill of people and you don't want to punch that person at work who gets on your nerves. You don't even want to think about it, although I'm still working on that part. (laughs) But you, but, you know, the, the most important part is not doing violence to ourselves. And Black women are constantly um, encouraged to do violence to ourselves in the relationships that we have, because we're supposed to have all of the grace for other people, but none of the grace for our needs. And I wonder, so, you know, it sounds like from your letter that you've come to understand that in your parental relationships. 
that sort of there's this highest good that you're not doing violence to yourself and your familial relationships. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you come back for part two. It doesn't stop here. And as always, make sure you tune in every Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. Series XM Channel 142, HBCU. Peace.